So go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 25. We'll be starting in verse on verse 13 of Acts 25. But if you want to, go ahead also and turn to Isaiah chapter 9, where I will be introducing our text today from there. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can as well. Before we go to God's Word this morning, let's pray that He would help us with it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come together to learn more about You, that You would help us, we are desperately always trying to use Your words in such a way to make ourselves look like the champion, to make ourselves look like the righteous one, and everyone else not. We would take your words in order to lift ourselves up so that we might obtain the glory. And Lord, for that, we pray that you would help us, that you would convict us of that sin, that that you would help us more and more to be like you, because we need your help. Even as we open your word this morning as your people, we struggle with it, and we need help for understanding. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us Open our hearts and our minds to hear your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll turn to Isaiah chapter 9 to introduce our text this morning. We read from that together. But I want to read this again in the context of our chapter in Acts today. Isaiah chapter 9, starting at verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And in the former time, he brought unto contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in later, in latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of this burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as of on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned for, as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of the peace and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So in Acts today, we'll read of Paul's defense against the accusations of the Jews. And again, it is this time with King Agrippa. In it, he's going to detail his life story. He is going to detail his conversion, to give his call to repentance to everyone there. Because he's Paul and he's going to preach the gospel. That's what he's going to do. 
And he's also going to give a specific charge to the Jews there. That they are not remembering the promises that were given to them. And that's their problem. They are not seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises that are in the Old Testament. Instead, they are rejecting him. They're placing their hope in something else instead. Paul presents that charge to all there. Essentially calling it the crux of the whole gospel. You either believe in those promises or you don't believe in the only hope that can save you. And so in Isaiah 9 that we just read, that is one of the many examples of the promised Messiah in the Old Testament that the Jews looked forward to. They looked forward to the child that would be born and the government would rest upon his shoulders. He would be called the Prince of Peace. That the people of God would no longer be subject to their enemies. That they would be free. That is the thing that they looked forward to more than anything. These prophecies would be fulfilled in the time of Isaiah, a very near prophecy, but they were delivered from the Assyrians during those times, but ultimately are fulfilled in the one who would come, the one the Jews were still looking forward to, the one Jesus Christ. With this, the people are delivered from their biggest enemies, sin and death. And so as we look at our passage today, we're going to see these promises presented to the people in this passage. Even Paul himself, we're going to see what they looked like before they believed in these promises, before his conversion, continually rejecting the the plain truth that was set before them. And how we, even as believers, can tend to do the same thing. We'll also see our call to this present day message is still the same today. The message is still the same, even though there may be rejections. We are still called to share that message. And so as we look at this passage, I want to look at it in three main ideas. First, kicking against the goads, then declaring the truth, and then calling to repentance. And so with that, I'll read the text, Acts 25, starting at verse 13. Please stand with me as we read from God's Word. There's a, we'll be reading a pretty big chunk today, so just bear with me. <clears throat> now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at, uh, sorry, verse 23. That's why it looked different to me. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And as they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and on and the prominent men of the city, then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought to not, not live any longer. But I found that he had nothing had done nothing deserving death and that he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am making my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. 
My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it, why is it thought incredible that by any one of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things to opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem. I did not, I not, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared for you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, that they may turn from darkness to light, and they may, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified in faith or by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day... I have had the help that comes from God, and so stand here testifying, both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said that would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. It's a pretty big chunk this morning, I realize, but it was all definitely one major thought here. 
Just as a review for us, last week we talked about King Agrippa showing up there to Caesarea and to greet Festus, you remember, and while there he decided that he wanted to hear Paul in his own speech against the charges that were, defend himself against the charges that were made. Remember, Agrippa wasn't a true king in the sense that he had any real power. He was still just under Roman authority. Festus was the real power there. Agrippa was just this holdover from the Herodian dynasty. But he was still a figurehead, and he, and probably in a way to kind of satiate the Jews there, they giving them a person at least to kind of play the part of king, even though he wasn't a real one. Festus, again, the real power, even though he was just a puppet as well of Rome, and uh, a puppet to rule over the Jewish people who were historically a very difficult people to rule over. And, uh, and Rome will just eventually do away with them in a few short years after this takes place. Paul was tried under Festus. He appealed to Caesar, and so that was where Festus was going to send him. Paul, being a Roman citizen, had that right. And he's now now giving his testimony to Agrippa. So this defense isn't serving to remove any of Paul's charges or to change his standing, but it will serve once again to have the name of Jesus Christ proclaimed in that. This might be my favorite passage in the book of Acts because I think it mirrors very much what a good gospel presentation looks like, of course, with Paul giving that presentation. He gives his testimony, but ultimately the honor and glory go to Jesus. I think testimonies can be useful tools in evangelism, but they never replace preaching the gospel. And I think here's a great example for us. And so that brings me to the first point, kicking against the goats. Look there at verse 23 of Acts 25. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came in with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. So you kind of get this this idea that this is a big show that is going on. You can almost hear the music and see the purple robes and all these things that are going to be happening as, as Agrippa enters into this place so that they can hear Paul speak. Festus follow suit, giving this long introduction of Paul's situation before allowing Paul to speak for himself, and you kind of get this very formal idea going on here. Even before Paul begins his speech, he kind of stretches out his hand to deliver uh, his speech to the people. It wouldn't have been an uncommon thing. You still see people do that, but you kind of get this high atmosphere that's going on here. Lots of people listening. This was no small hearing. Um, very, Lots of people would have been gathered there to hear, and so Paul is using this opportunity to share the gospel. We've looked at the conversion of Paul a few times now in Acts, as this is the third time that Paul or that Luke writes about it, the second time that Paul has actually told about it. And so I mainly want to focus on a few lines that have importance uh, as far as they're different as we've looked at before. First, notice that Agrippa was familiar with what Luke says, the customs and controversies of the Jews, there in verse 3 of chapter 26. Um, Paul isn't addressing a man that is unfamiliar with Judaism. He understands what's going on in the Jewish religion. Uh, Agrippa knows the Jews very well, and I think that's one of the reasons why the Jews liked him. And then verse 5, they have known for a long time 
if they are willing to testify, he's talking about Paul talking about the Jews, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Paul aligns himself with this, the party of the Pharisees, and he calls, he calls it the strictest party. We've talked about that. They were very conservative, and they were very strict in the way they looked at the Scriptures. They studied the Scriptures faithfully. They were considered very holy in their behavior. Uh, they tried to live as holy as possible, following Jewish customs as closely as possible, and even creating their own customs in order to kind of make this holiness, to, to, to have the appearance of holiness. And so that kind of leads us to verses 9 through 11. What Paul says about the Christians. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition or in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. And I'd only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from chief priests. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In raging fury against them, Paul describes his own hate for the Christians before he was converted, persecuting them even to foreign cities. He was finding out, remember as we read earlier in the book of Acts, that the Christians were being persecuted in Jerusalem, and so they tried to scatter. And so Paul was finding out where they scattered to and was pursuing them to those places. And that's what took him to Damascus. And he was converted on the way there by our Lord Himself. Jesus came to them, or to him, and what did Jesus say? Verse 14, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. In the morning, when I go wake up the kids every morning, I'm the, the one that wakes everybody up at my house. And, uh, nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm fine with that. I'm a morning person. Mrs. Chipman, not so much a morning person. <laughs> None of my kids really are either, and that's okay. I'm the one that wakes them up in the morning. I have to sometimes say their names more than once to get their attention. Anna. You know, she has to hear that more than once because I'm bringing them out of sleep. Jesus, here, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Very tenderly speaking to his child, even though he just tossed him to the ground. Saul, wake up. Why are you persecuting me? Not my church. Why are you killing my people? Why are you doing this to me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Sometimes I think this little phrase is maybe my life verse. Why do you kick against the goads? Jesus here is painting a picture of a farmer behind a plow. And he's pulling, or he has a team of oxen, or maybe just one ox. And he has this long pole. And this long pole may be just a sharp stick, or it may be a stick that has a metal poker on the end of it and he's poking the ox I would imagine that it's not a fun thing for an ox to pull a plow or maybe it just wants to be doing something else I mean we have phrases for this right stubborn as an ox they don't really want to do the thing that we're asking them to do not that it's hard for them to pull the plow it's a big old animal 
they probably just don't want to. And so they need to be goaded on by this thing called an ox goad, this long stick with a metal poker. And so you can imagine what Jesus is saying here. Imagine the ox, the farmer poking the ox, and the ox, rather than just going on, it's kicking back. And every time it kicks back, it drives that long, sharp point right through its foot. And so now, not only is it going to also still have to plow the field, it's also going to have to do so with a sore foot. Aren't we much like this many times? Just like that ox, how many times have I myself kicked against the goads rather than just walk forward? Been doing it since day one, probably. And I'm pretty much sure that most of us can relate with that. We kick against the goads, the things that we know that we ought to be doing, we don't do. It causes more problems in our lives. How is Paul like this ox? Verses 6 through 8. This is the crux of this. Verses 6 through 8. He was a Pharisee, the strictest party. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all of these fathers. To which our twelve tribes hope to attain. As they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible that any of, by any of you that God raises the dead? He was an unbelieving Pharisee. But those same truths of the scriptures, like we read in Isaiah 9, like Todd read in Isaiah 35, like you can read from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Malachi, all of those truths were before the Jewish people. And what are those truths about? Every one of them, Jesus Christ and his coming. And what was Paul doing as a Pharisee was persecuting Christians. He was kicking against the thing that he knew to be true. He had the truth of Scripture As a matter of fact, he was a student of it, a scholar. He had the truth of Scripture, yet he exchanged it for a lie. He kicked against the goads. He worshipped a God that offered him hope. But when that hope came, he killed those who followed him. And now, he is one surrendered. He is no longer kicking against the goads, but surrendering to the Master and seeking his will instead. So what about us, brothers and sisters? We'll talk about the unbeliever in a minute. But consider this passage for you as a believer this morning. We know the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ came to save his sins, came to save sinners. We are those sinners. We are saved by him, not because of anything we have done. Just like we sang this morning, we do not stand on anything we have done. We stand upon his merit. But now, How do we live as if we have somehow done it ourselves or we need to still do it on our own? We look at others and we do one of two things. When it's someone that we consider bad, in quotation marks, we compare them to our works and think if only you acted better, then you'd be saved. And really what we should say, acted better like me what we're really saying there. Or then we look at someone else 
on the other end of the spectrum, when we look at them and we think they're a super spiritual Christian hero, and we think, wow, if I was only like that person, if I only read my Bible as much as they did, or shared the gospel like they do, or prayed, or did whatever, fill in the blank, then I would somehow have the favor and blessing that that person has, or at least I think they do. As if with, you know, if we're honest, it's probably because we want some of the praise that we think our Christian heroes are getting. We want some of that glory that they're getting because they're better than us, or at least we think they are. When will we stop kicking against the goads? Ultimately, in heaven is when we'll stop doing this, brothers and sisters. I wish I had a better answer for you, but how do we get better now? When it comes to comparisons, Paul had the best resume of anyone in church history, but he fell short when it came to Jesus Christ, and he was thrown off his horse with that reality and faced with his Creator, and he had to answer to him. So who should we be looking to in this life? Our Lord Jesus Christ. What do we put in the place of our pompous thoughts when we think we are better than someone else? Christ is who we put there. What do we put in the place of our falsely humble thoughts of those that we want to be like? Christ is who we put there. What did Paul write? In Romans. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We need nothing else. We need Christ. To claim that we need anything else is to kick against the goads, to act as if we are unbelievers. And so that brings me to the next point, declaring the truth. Look with me at verses 19 and following. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not obedient or disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim both light to our people and to the Gentiles. He called them to repentance, is what Paul did, which we'll talk more about in a moment, and he was arrested for it. And what was the substance of his calling? What does he talk about? He was saying... The substance of his message, and you can read, a lot of his messages are recorded, we've gone through them. He is saying only that which what Moses said and what the prophets said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer and that he would be the first to rise from the dead and that by doing so, he would be a light to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Again, we talk about this all the time. What was the promise given to Abraham? Abraham's offspring would be a blessing to whom? The whole world. And guess who's here? Abraham's offspring. Isaac's offspring. Jacob's offspring. David's offspring would do what? He would sit on the eternal throne. And he's here. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He was born in the city of David. The one who would bruise the head of the serpent is here. It is Jesus Christ. 
what Moses talked about, what the prophets talked about, that is what he preached to those people. And look at verse 24. What is Festus' response to this? Paul, you are out of your mind. Because no self-respecting Roman believes in the resurrection. Because instead, what do Romans believe? That Caesar is God, and so are Jupiter and Mars and Neptune, along with all the other Roman pantheon. No Jew would believe in Jesus because their Savior instead is going to ride in on a white horse and save them from Rome, not die by Roman hands. Just think of the atheists. They're saying the same thing, right? No atheist believes in a resurrection or this man called Jesus or the things that he does because it's so much easier to believe that life came from nothing. And that all matter in the universe began as a point smaller than a period at the end of the sentence in my notes. It's much easier to believe that. And that dot, by the way, it came from nowhere. Because we're created from nothing. That's an easier story to believe than the one that's being put forth here in the scriptures. So instead, it's Paul that's out of his mind. Not the people that he's preaching to. Everyone else is wrong. Christians are the ones that are out of their mind. See here, even from the earliest days of Christianity, we've been called out as people who are nuts, out of our minds. Now, to be sure, some Christians probably fit the bill, doing things in the name of Christ that are no, by no means Christian things, treating people poorly, mishandling the word of truth, seeking the favor and approval of man rather than the approval of God. We fall into those same boats sometimes. But to believe the truth of the Bible is not crazy. It is rational. It is truth. In fact, no one can argue against it. They can only deny it. That's it. And they replace it with some other truth that they've drummed up on their own. Look at verse 26. For the king, this is Paul speaking, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not happened in a corner. Paul had a way of saying things. It's not only for Agrippa, but it's also for the whole world. Christianity has not existed in a corner. The Creator did not do His work in the dark and only select a few to see it. The whole world has been put on notice. Every one of us. Every one of them. There is a Creator and you are not him. Call upon his son and be saved or die and suffer eternal judgment. Those are your options. There's not a third. Paul writes about this later in Romans 1. We've talked about Romans 1 a lot. The unbelievers left without excuse. They see the truth of God. They know God exists. So what do they do? They exchange the truth of God for a lie and they worship the created thing rather than the creator. You see this coming out in this passage very clearly. They've been doing it since Adam and Eve thought the serpent had a good idea. And And they'll continue to do it until Christ comes back and takes his people home. Brothers and sisters, what are we going to do with that truth? Over the next few days, we'll see family, we'll see loved ones. What are we going to do with that truth as we see these people. And that brings me to the second or the last point calling 
to repentance. Look at verse 20 again. Verse 20. He declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Verse 27. Verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. Do you believe? What do we do? What is, what is it that we do with this truth? We call the question. All the talk in the world is just talk unless the believer is brought to the point of decision. Do you believe? Do you believe these things that you're being told? We know that the Lord alone is capable of opening the hearts of unbelievers. We know that that is the case. But we, you and I, have been sent as messengers. And we've been given a very clear and easy message Do you believe, repent, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? It is the message that Paul and Peter preached. It's the message that saints from then till now have been preaching. And Agrippa even says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? I mean, it's a place that many are in their faith, right, that we deal with. They don't yet believe, but they have questions and they need answers. And they've been told not to ask questions sometimes. And they, have, they need to know. They've considered Christ, but they aren't quite sure about Him. Maybe they went to church as a kid. They started to ask questions. They started to wonder. And those are good. And those questions have sent them back. And they're still wondering. They don't know what to believe. That is where most people are. We want to paint this picture of people being staunch and hardened atheists. And most of them just aren't. Most of them have questions and they want to know. It's the average person here in Callaway County, guys, that has these questions and they want to know. It's likely that they even walked down the aisle at church camp or something at some point and said a little prayer and thought that that was some form of insurance for them. And they have questions. It's not a prayer that saves you. It's Jesus Christ that saves you. You can have faith in a prayer, but it's faith in Jesus Christ alone that saves a person. And so we're going to have these quick conversations. What are we going to do? And with so many that are out there that have these questions, what are we doing? May we say with Paul as he answers Agrippa, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day would become such as I am, a sinner saved by the work of God alone. Do we want that for the lost? That is a question that we have to answer. So in in conclusion, church, we are those who kick against the goads many times. Let us more and more be willing to follow after our Lord Jesus Christ as he makes us more and more like himself. And let us be a people who are free with the message of salvation to call people to faith and repentance in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray this morning. Our Lord Jesus... As we come to you, we come to people as people who are kicking against the goads even now. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that you are right, that you are always right. Your word is always right, and it is good for us. It is what we need. We don't need our own truth. We need your truth. And so, Lord, help us. 
And Lord, help us to be faithful messengers of this truth, even though it's difficult and it divides. It is the truth that is the hope for all people. Lord, you have called us to be messengers to the world, and Lord, we pray that we would be faithful in that. Help us with that task. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.